in our study of the Ten Commandments, returning once again to the Seventh Commandment, which forbids adultery. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1244. Now, last week we spent some time delving into the sins that are forbidden in this particular commandment, the ways that humans have twisted what God created good and for our good until it is in our lives and in our culture most often poisonous. This morning, we need to look a bit at the flip side of the coin. How did God design sex and sexuality, not just in itself, but in all that it means for the right functioning of society. This can be uncomfortable to talk about, especially from the pulpit. I guarantee you I'm more uncomfortable than you are right now. But it's also incredibly important for us to consider sex as God designed it and not simply surrender the narrative, the definitions to the culture at large simply because we get a little squeamish talking about it. Of course, to tackle something as prone to pitfalls as this is, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. We need Him to speak His truth through us. You don't need my wisdom. You need God's wisdom. So let's go to Him now. Uh, If you're able, please stand while I pray for the wisdom and the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Then remain standing as I read from Ephesians 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because we need your truth. In this area, almost more than any other, we need your truth because we are so blinded by our culture, by our earthly, worldly, human wisdom that is, in fact, wisdom of no sort at all. And yet it is the air we breathe. So, Lord, we pray by your Spirit, give us a breath of fresh air. Draw our eyes to see you and your purpose in sexuality. That we might glorify you with our minds, with our hearts, with our bodies, with the whole of us. In this area and all others. May your name be praised as you give us your wisdom, as you give us your spirit this morning. Let your name be praised. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Ephesians 5. I'll read the first 11 verses of the chapter. This is God's Word. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk then as children of light, 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. So I recently ran across a, an older blog post a couple of years ago uh, by Tim Challies. He's a Christian author. I'm not, you may, may have heard of him. Uh, in this blog post, he wrote about his family's experience with cooking shows. Uh, since I enjoy cooking, not particularly good at it, but I like doing it. Uh, since I enjoy watching Top Chef in particular, I was intrigued. And in this post, he wrote that every now and again, his wife will start watching one of these shows, will get into one of these cooking shows, and every time she does, he says, it works out well for me and for the kids. Because she, does, she doesn't stop with just watching. As soon as she'll watch for a little while, whatever show it is, doesn't even really matter which one, she'll watch for a little while, and then she'll get in the kitchen and start cooking herself, wanting to imitate what she sees on the shows. And he goes on to say, Whether in narrow pursuits like cooking or in the wider realm of all of life, we are people who thrive on imitation and inspiration. Whether deliberately or inadvertently, we are always on the lookout for people who are worthy of imitation. Aspiring chefs seek out expert chefs, uh, those who have done great things and are well-renowned in the, in the industry. They, they seek out, carefully watch, closely imitate experienced chefs. Of course, that's not limited to the chef career, right? It, or to any career. We do it in all walks of life. Just as uh, one example, I try anyway to imitate the Kleins in their pickleball giftedness. I thus far have failed miserably, but I'm trying. If you want to get better at something, Find someone who's good at it and imitate them. Cooking shows and others like them are meant to be entertaining, right? They want you to come watch, so you'll watch their ads. But they're also meant to be inspiring. They are meant to attract viewers, but also to inspire imitators. To make you, as the viewer, want to cook better, more beautiful meals as the chef-testants do. And in that way, these shows are a little glimpse of the shape of our lives. We are created to imitate. Just as little children imitate their parents and so learn basic activities like talking and walking and eating and more complex activities. My kids are fans of the St. Louis baseball Cardinals because they're imitating Holly and me. We're right in that, by the way. You should all do that, but that's another story. Uh, As Christians, as sons and daughters of the King, Jesus is our great example. Now, of course, He's not only our example. He is also the only Redeemer of God's elect. Jesus didn't come only to give us an example. Some have taught that in the past. And yet, we must acknowledge that God's people should look more and more like He looks. Like the one in whose image we are made. We should be striving more and more to imitate Christ, not in our physical traits, obviously, but in our spiritual traits, in our actions, in our 
care for one another, in our willingness to sacrifice for the best good of another, in our pursuit of God's glory rather than our own. We should be working to outdo one another in showing love in the same way that Jesus showed love. Now, I don't think anybody here is going to disagree with that, right? We're all on board. But maybe you're wondering why I would start a sermon that's supposed to be about sex with imitation. That seems an odd choice. Well, the short answer is, that's kind of what Paul does. He says, verse 1, that we should imitate God, and then verse 2, by walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As Jesus sacrificed on the cross, so in some fashion we should sacrifice ourselves for others. Now, I have to be careful here because while we are to imitate Christ in this, it is as a child sitting in the car seat pretending to drive the car because he sees daddy in the front seat actually driving the car. There is a qualitative difference between the two. The child is trying to be like daddy, but only one of them is actually controlling the car. There is a qualitative, substantive difference there. There is a similar gulf between us and Jesus. Our sacrificial love for others is like Jesus' giving of himself, both in his life and in his death, but there is a qualitative, substantive difference between his sacrifice once for all efficacious for salvation, and our sacrifices. And ideally, in the best moments, in our best moments, our sacrifices are caring, well thought through, and actually accomplishing something, but in no way effective for salvation. There is a qualitative substantive difference there. But Christ's love for us is the model on which we base our love for each other. Even though there's a substantive difference, He is God and we are not, yet still we imitate Him as beloved children. Paul doesn't really give us a lot of explanation of, of detail of what that looks like here, of what Christ's love is here, but instead he says that we are... We are to walk in love as Christ loved us, giving himself up for us. In some sense, walking in love is doing what Christ did. But then where does Paul go? The very next thing he says, he shows beginning verse 3, the inverse, the reverse of the self-sacrificial love of Christ, which we are to imitate. He demonstrates what that is by showing us the opposite that we are to avoid. The opposite, the converse of Christ's love for us is sexual immorality. A, and that term, just one dictionary said, it, it covers all sexual sins, including adultery, fornication, homosexual practice, on and on and on. We could name, we, that list goes on ad, ad infinitum, right? But then we're looking at Paul going, wait, I don't, I don't understand, Paul. How, how did you get there? We're supposed to imitate Christ by walking in love, and the opposite of that is sexual immorality. How did you get there? Sure, Paul, sexual immorality is bad, but what's the connection? Ultimately, the opposite of Christ-like love is not hatred. It's not even indifference, as kind of the popular aphorism is. You know, they'll say, well, the, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. The opposite of Christ's love is not hatred, and it isn't even indifference. Although 
both of those things, both hatred and indifference, can lead us to the opposite of Christ's love. Rather, because Christ's love is not primarily an emotion but an action, so also the opposite of Christ's love is also an action first. Christ's love was most clearly expressed in His crucifixion in our place, but the whole of His life and His death and His resurrection, His entire earthly ministry, is entirely unified in His purpose to offer Himself as a sacrifice for others, for His people. Christ-like love is self-sacrifice for others. So the opposite of such love is other sacrifice for self. The opposite of Christ-like self-sacrifice for others is other sacrifice for myself. The opposite of giving myself for the best good of another is taking what I want regardless of the consequences to another. It is the sacrifice of another person for my own benefit. At heart, all of the sinfulness that we talked about last week, all of the things that we could talk about under the heading of sexual sin, all of it boils down to this. One person sacrificing another person for their own pleasure, to meet their own selfish desires. One person using another to get what they want. One person treating another person as merely the means to an end in the midst of the most intimate of moments. As Lord Farquaad said in the movie Shrek, Sure, you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. This is a tough thing to wrap our heads around. Why is sexual immorality the polar opposite, the converse of Christ-like love? What's the connection? Because sex is a sacrament. Now, I I say that to be a little provocative. It is not a sacrament. No, it's not a sacrament in the, the technical sense that we use that word for baptism in the Lord's Supper, obviously. Sacraments instituted by Jesus and through which he communicates his grace to us. It is not a sacrament in that sense. But follow me here. Metaphorically, in a sacrament, through the means of signs perceptible to our senses, something that isn't perceptible to our senses, is communicated to us and actually accomplished in us. Through a sacrament, something that is perceptible to our senses is used as the vehicle, as the means by which something that is not perceptible to our senses is communicated and accomplished in us. Sacraments are physical actions or activities which represent a deeper truth, and which actually accomplish or communicate something of that deeper truth to us. Now, in the Lord's Supper, we see it is about far more than a cracker and a shot of grape juice or wine. There's a lot more going on there. We talk about that every month when we do it, right? The Lord communicates His grace to us, communicates Himself to us in some way that's really difficult for us to quantify, but not difficult to recognize. The Lord is doing something through those ordinary means. 
Sex is a sacrament in the sense that there is more going on in it than the mere physical activities. The two are made one flesh. As intended, there is a joining not just of bodies but of souls, a melding of the deepest parts of our being wherein each person gives himself or herself completely. It is a physical activity that represents and actually accomplishes so much more than the physical activity alone could explain. You give yourself completely and your spouse does as well, not merely your bodies, but the whole of your lives, body, soul, and spirit. You give yourself completely sworn before God and everyone. Sex is the physical avatar of the marriage vow, the manifestation, the embodiment of the ideal of those stated vows, the ideal which, because of our sin, we so rarely rise to the level of. We are to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that reality should help us understand why Paul chose sexual immorality as the first example of what must be rejected to pursue Christ-like love. Sexual immorality, ultimately in whatever form it takes, is using the vehicle that God created for giving yourself wholly to another, for serving them with the entirety of your being, the whole of your life, and twisting it, inverting it to say instead, you give yourself for me, for my pleasure, for my convenience. I will take what I want. And if you fail or refuse, or if I get bored, I'll cast you aside and find someone better. The absolute opposite of Christ's love for us. Now this is seen most clearly in the extreme, the most extreme versions of this sin, sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape, that kind of thing. One person taking another person by force, whether that force is physical or emotional or something else. Taking by force what is not and maybe cannot be given willingly taking advantage of trust in a relationship, whether that trust stems from friendship or the authority in a job or in the church or, God forbid, from a parent, and twisting that trust to dehumanize the other person, to treat them as a thing and use them purely for selfish ends, using sex to meet your own needs with little or no thought for the good of the other person is a gross perversion of God's purpose for it. And it is not less wicked if the victim happens to be married to the perpetrator. The heart that takes advantage of someone sexually to gratify its own desires outside of marriage will do inside of marriage the same thing. The heart that is comfortable using people for its own benefit will do so in every aspect and area of life. Whatever form that using takes, whether it's the extreme of violent rape and child abuse to serial monogamy to demanding things in bed, demanding things in bed to porn use and anything else, 
whatever form it takes, the heart attitude of using people for self-gratification will infest every part of your life. That heart posture will skew every relationship, will absolutely poison everything you touch. Even if you think you've got it compartmented off into this little area where it's not affecting anything, it is poisoning everything. It affects the whole of your being. It will poison absolutely everything you touch. The Lord will not be mocked. Flee from sexual immorality. Walk in love, giving yourself as an offering to God for the best good of another. Seeking and working for their best benefit in every aspect of life, whether it is explicitly sexual or something else entirely, Serve one another as Christ has served you. All right, that's great. And it's awfully challenging because we are by nature selfish jerks. But this isn't a marriage conference. This command was not only given to married people. So what do we do? Is there a broader application of the commandment that speaks to more than just sexuality? And the short answer, of course, is yes, we talked a couple of times about uh, what we've called the law of categories. Uh, that The commandments are not meant to be exhaustive lists, but rather a categorical, you know, one item put in as a whole to represent the whole category of related things. Um, the commandments were not meant to be exhaustive as if the seventh commandment were limited only to a technical definition of adultery. We talked about that some last week, but rather they're intended to apply, apply to a whole category of actions and heart attitudes, which is summarized by the one representative action that is explicitly mentioned. We talked last week about the reality of the range of sexually immoral actions that are covered by the seventh commandment, at least somewhat. There's actually a step even broader than that that speaks even more broadly to the whole of life. We sometimes refer to sex as intimacy, and rightly so. A word which expresses a closeness in some sense predominantly of heart and mind. Intimacy dominantly speaks to a a closeness of heart and mind. The intimacy of marriage, ideally anyway, and we know that it's not always the truth, but the intimacy of marriage ideally is both expressed by and deepened through sexual intimacy. Adultery is breaking that intimacy, violating that trust, using others for your own momentary pleasure. But I think the attitude that is called for by spouses here, as well as the opposite which is forbidden, also applies outside the specific venue of marriage. It applies as well to our other relationships. Just as we are called to give ourselves for the best good of our spouse, both in physical intimacy and in all the other facets of intimacy that are connected to physical, so we are called to the same attitude and approach in all our relationships. The same giving of ourselves for the best good of the other. And nowhere more so than in the church. In the body that is defined by the love of Christ. 
as a part of the body of Christ, as, as one local portion of it, we are called to imitate Christ, to be like Him in the ways that we care for each other. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's not wrong to look after your own interests, but we are called to also look for, look after the interests of our brothers and sisters. Romans 15, 1 and 2, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself, but took our shame, took our reproach on himself. Probably half of the letters to the Corinthians, of the sum total of the two books to the Corinthians, talks about this very idea. But especially in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about his right to do all sorts of things, but his choice to sacrifice those rights, things which were legitimately his right to do, he chose to sacrifice instead for the sake of serving the church, serving the body. He says in 9.19, Though I am free from all, yet I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. This is the attitude, the approach that we are called to as Christians in the world. To be radical imitators of Christ is to give up your legitimate rights so as to serve others. Christ would have been well within his rights to arrive here on earth and demand that every human being and every other portion of creation fall down and worship him instantly. That's what he deserved. He chose instead to humble himself and serve them. Even in their rebellion, even in our wickedness and our refusal to acknowledge him, he chose to serve us and we are called to imitate his laying aside of his rights the glory of that is that at least within the church each of us is also called to pursue all of us together are called to pursue this radical service of each other in the same way that in a marriage relationship ideally both spouses are laying down their life in service of the other in the church, ideally, each of us as members of Christ are laying down our lives to serve Him and to serve each other as we serve Him. This radical laying aside of pride, laying aside of demands, radical laying aside of the using people heart attitude in favor of the using up myself in service to others. Y'all, we are terrible at this. We are so bad. As human beings, we are awful at doing this. Even when we do it well from the world's perspective, even when we mortify our sin and serve others, that using people attitude is still always there, simmering away in the backs of our hearts, waiting for the slightest crack to boil over and take over your life. We all long for unity in the church but more often than not, what we actually mean by that is not unity, but uniformity. 
in our hearts. We don't want people who disagree with us. We want people who, or excuse me, we don't want people who disagree with us but sacrifice their desires in favor of serving each other. We just want people to agree with me, preferably. Now, for years, the cultural air in the broader culture, for years, maybe for decades, the cultural air that we've been breathing says, you're worth it. You deserve whatever you want. You are righteous, and anyone who challenges your opinions is actually evil. And they're actually in the service of the evil one. And y'all, the last 18 months have exacerbated that in ways that I would not have believed possible. Exponentially worse. As a society, we are nowhere near as healthy in this. We were not healthy in this before the pandemic started. But the pressure of that pandemic, the isolation imposed by it, whether that isolation was wise or not, the, it was a fact that it happened. Everything that was going on in 2020 took our natural sinful heart condition that demands my rights over everything else. My rights uber alles. Demands that you serve me, that you make my life easier, regardless of the cost to you. The heart condition, that heart condition became the dominant, obvious driving force of all of our lives as a culture. Now, on the one hand, we expect that from the world. We should not be surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians, right? They're pagans. Pagans are going to peg. They aren't Christians. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Why would we expect them to act like they do? Why would we expect them to be holy? The problem is that many of those who claim Christ have been filled with the exact same attitude, with the exact same spirit, with the exact same heart, Oh, we call it by different names. We use different terminology for it. We come up with all sorts of holy-sounding rationales. We're just wallowing in the same mud. And, y'all, I'm not picking on one side or the other. We are all guilty of it, whatever flavor of, of opinion you, you're looking at. We are all guilty of demanding our way with the cost to be paid by someone else, anyone else. I don't care as long as it's not me. It's the same attitude that leads a man to consume pornography, to demand his way in the bedroom regardless of anything else, to commit adultery and ultimately to cast aside the wife of his youth entirely. It is, in the words of an old pastor of mine, good friend, a selfish, self-centered focus on self. And it is absolutely poisonous. It is poisonous in a marriage. It is poisonous in a family. It is poisonous in a job. And it is poisonous when it comes into the church. So what's the solution? How do we get uninfected from the world's selfish priorities? Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. We actively pursue imitation of Christ. 
walking in the same type of self-sacrificial love with which Christ loved us. The same self-sacrificial love that led Him to the cross to die in our place. Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Some of the older translations have made Himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself massively to become like us. And then he didn't stop there. He went further and humbled himself even by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Be imitators of Christ. Laying aside by the work of His Spirit within you because we can't do it on our own. Laying aside your selfish desires, your desire to be served, and pursue serving your brothers and sisters. Look for the deep wounds that people have and reach out with a balm. Not just a band-aid, but a balm with healing. Look for the lonely. Walk with them in love. Sacrifice your time to care for those who are lonely, who are hurting. Be imitators of Christ inasmuch as He enables you by His Spirit so that your brothers and your sisters may be built up in love. And as you pursue these actions... Because again, Christ's love for us was active. It was an action. As you pursue these actions, you will find that more and more your heart will change. And you will actually desire their best good. Not perfectly in this life, but more. You will grow in that desire to imitate Christ. And He will bless you through them and bless them through you. And you will be a fragrant offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord your God because of what He is working in and through you by His grace. This is the picture of where we should be pursuing instead of, in place of, the selfish, self-centered focus on self that is consumed with my prerogatives with my rights with my desires with what i need from you we are called to lay down our lives we want to make that about oh i'll take a bullet for you okay fine but what about cleaning cleaning out the trash for me what about doing the dishes what about building a deck thank you guys by the way How are you giving up your life to serve your brothers and sisters? To serve those whom God has put in your life? When God calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, He doesn't mean a little bit. Because we don't love ourselves a little bit. He calls us to love our neighbors sacrificially as He loved us. And as we pursue that, 
He works grace in us. He works His mercy in us and changes our hearts to make us more and more in the image of His beloved Son, who is our hope. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Yourself nothing. You took on the form, not just of a human, but of a poor, shamed human. Born into a family that had next to nothing. Lived a life of poverty and brokenness. And then went to the cross in our place. Died the most shameful death that Rome could come up with. Not because you'd earned it, not because you deserved it, but because we did. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would so fill us with a vision of you and what you've done for us, your gift to us on the cross, your salvation of us in justification and sanctification, in the glorification that we long for and is so certain that we can say it's been done, that we would so be filled with the beauty of that, that we would not hesitate to lay our lives down for others. Brothers, sisters, neighbors, whoever you bring into our lives, let us be filled with self-sacrificial love for the best good of others. And as you fill us with that, change our community. Use us as your ambassadors, speaking a better word into this place. A truer word, an inversion of the priorities of the rat race of life that so much of the world is completely trapped in. Be at work in us by your Spirit. Do what only you can, for if you do not put humility and grace and self-sacrifice in us, we will never do it. So give us grace that we might serve you faithfully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.